welcome back, travelers, to Tales from the Enchanted Forest with your hosts, Fox and Sparrow. Sasri Akal. Welcome, travelers. And if you're new here, we just want to say welcome. This is so exciting to have you join us. We are a podcast that uploads episodes every fortnight. And we talk about all these different types of fairy tales, folklore, myths. And sometimes we just talk about uh, other stories that have most definitely sprung from our traditional idea of folklore, but maybe are not necessarily folklore itself. For examples of that, see our Star Wars episode. Today's story is a Punjabi tale that was collected by Flora Annie Steele in her book, Tales from the Punjab, Told by the People. So Steele does admit to fundamentally changing parts of her oral tales in order to fill the scientific guidelines laid out by the Folklore Society, but to also make it so that her works are able to be read by children. So we don't know how much of this story she's adapted and how much of it is the real story. But in our research, we did find another version in an 1880 volume of the Indian Antiquary Journal, and that focuses on archaeology, philosophy, folktales, and history from all over India. Uh, there is a retelling of this story found inside that volume by Richard Karnak Temple. It does use notes from Steele, but it's also sourced from an old lady near Lahore, which is my favorite type of source. <laughs> It's like, oh, some old lady told me this story. Perfect. I love it. I swear. It was my sister's grandmother's aunt's friend's dog who told me, and I swear they're reliable. It's all good. See, I don't know what it is, but it's always when they have some kind of weird source, like, oh, some person told me this story while I was in a pub one night, and I thought to write it down. Those, I feel like, are so authentic. I'm like, yes, tell me the pub stories that some random person told you. You remembered to write down all these things, but you didn't remember to write down the freaking name, the name of the <laughs> person telling you the story. No, I mean, most collections, they hardly ever mention who told them the story. But I remember in some of the ones from the Norse tales, it was always something um, kind of just random. And those I find are my favorites. I mean, those are the ways to get like the most crazy stories, but... It is a little sad that we can't get any more reference on who the actual person was who was telling it. Well, I mean, if any of our listeners are Punjabi or from northern India, I feel like there are tons of stories about um, small women or maidens who come from fruit. So if you have one that you'd like to share, please do send us an email or a comment somewhere. Because I would like to hear if this is a story that people have heard growing up. Um, or if this random lady made it up, because I 100%, if I was old, I would sit in like communal community spaces and just tell weird stories or like take folktales and add my spin to them and be like, ah, oh, yes, let me tell you this tale from my people. Mine as well at that point. You're <laughs> old, you have stories to tell, and if you're going to change it slightly so the younger folk can listen to you, then I get that. I feel that. <laughs> Although I do want to back up a little bit um, mm -hmm. and touch on the fact that the person fundamentally changed parts of the story to fit what uh, fit the guidelines from, from the Folklore Society. It makes sense, but it feels so strange like to think of if you went back to the original person telling the story, like, hey, this part is really cool and all, but it's going to get cut because these people thought it wouldn't count as folklore if I had it in here. So, you know, you understand what's happening, my dude, right? It feels like so weird. Well, I mean, I 
I don't know because Steele's introduction section did kind of rub me the wrong way. Um, mm-hmm. She does describe a lot of the stories as incoherent and not really making sense. And I'm just kind of like, well, it doesn't have to make sense to you because you're not from that region. You're not, you know, part of those people. So it doesn't have to make sense to you. I completely understand wanting to. And this is the problem that we've touched upon before of folklore collections that come from people who go out and actually collect the stories from the original peoples and then they tell it again from their own point of view or they rewrite it or they edit it down for a modern English audience and less so for the fact that it's a historical document. And it's always difficult because we are grateful that these stories exist and they've been written down. And obviously a lot of these stories are oral stories that otherwise would not have been collected in the way that they have been. But to a degree, it's almost a little bit condescending. Uh, Well, not a little bit. It's quite condescending to say your stories in its original form is not okay. So I've had to change it to fit these arbitrary guidelines. It is nice that there is a disclaimer that they have been changed. Yeah. um, And that, you know, she kind of tells on herself and says, you know, they're incoherent and they don't really make sense and you have to listen to the same story over and over again by the same person you have to coax them into telling you the story and so it's it's giving a little bit of a little bit of racism but we don't know <laughs> well i can't i don't know much about Theo, flora annie Steele, um besides the fact that she collected these stories and that she writes in her own work in her own words that she had to change them up so appreciate the honesty but, you know, it would have been cool if, like, she had laid out what she did have somewhere else, you know, and then and then mm-hmm. give us her version of the story. Because I would like both. That's really the ideal. Yeah, and I feel like when people say, well, why does it matter if the authors are people of color or, you know, why, do we sh- why should we have diverse authors when everyone should just be able to write whatever? And it kind of comes back to the main point and comes back to fairy tales and folklore and these oral stories as well in that some people grow up with these stories. They grow up with the culture that these stories come from. So the versions of the stories they hear and they tell, it's part of the essence of the story. So they don't get whitewashed. They don't get turned over for a Victorian or a white audience. They just stay the way they are. Mm -hmm. And I think this comes back to the rise, actually, of lots of South Asian, East Asian Uh, Middle Eastern authors writing their own stories and not just writing, you know, biographies or stuff like that, but writing fantasy stories. And I feel like that's just so empowering because you get to see people who are part of these cultures talk about their cultures and talk about them. And obviously fantasy, you always have elements of, you know, mysticism and dragons and fighting and all of this other heroic stuff and fictional lands. But you get to see storytelling from a different culture's perspective. So I'm not just having steampunk Victorian England over and over again um, or a medieval village over and over again. You get new places and new villages and new palaces and temples and all of this other stuff that comes from having other religions and cultures be part of narratives as well. But that's just my take at the moment because I'm quite interested in reading um, lots of South Asian fantasy books at the moment Mm. and so I just enjoy seeing things and seeing parts of stories and even Persian stories like I like seeing parts of them where I'm like oh I recognize that and it's just a nice moment where you're like this is part of a culture that I understand it's nice to have that familiarity and I hope 
some of our travelers have familiarity in today's story of Princess Overgene. Once there was a poor Brahmin, or religious man, and his wife. They were so poor that they often had to scour the wilderness to find herbs and plants to eat. It was on one of these trips into the forest that the Brahmin found a young aubergine, and for our American fans, that is an eggplant. Thinking it would make a nice meal when it ripened, he uprooted it and planted it tenderly in his garden. And he took such gentle care of it that some people joked it was like a child to him. Even after it had a bright purple fruit and a white flower, he could not bear to pick it, so he continued to tenderly care for it. Hearing you talk about the aubergine being like a bright purple fruit, there was like a bit of a disconnect for me because I always thought of eggplant as more of a vegetable. <laughs> so I was like, is it a fruit? Is it a vegetable? Am I thinking of something <laughs> different? I wasn't sure, so I had to look into it. And apparently it's considered a vegetable for cooking, but botanically it's like a berry. Um, kind of like a tomato is. And to me, it's like, mm, I never knew this before. <laughs> How have I never learned that a plant can be a fruit or a vegetable, depending on if it's a chef or a scientist who's asking about it? See, it's the whole, like, is a tomato a fruit or a vegetable argument? But kind of on the same line of thinking, we were at a pub quiz the other night, and one of the questions was something about this massive fruit that grows on a vine. And we were all thinking about, you know, grapes and different types of grapes and trying to think about what grows on a vine. Yeah. And we were all thinking of hanging vines. Do you want to guess what the answer was? Was it like a cucumber or something like that? No, close. Uh, zucchini? Nope, close. Tomatoes? No, it, it was a watermelon. Oh my gosh. You're right. And then once you look at a picture, you're like, oh, yes, that's a vine. But then when you're thinking about it, because it's on the ground, I don't really think about like growing sideways on the ground as a vine. I was just so confused. But yes, it's one of those things where like people don't really know how fruits and vegetables are categorized or also just what they look like when they're growing, like pineapples. But I feel like we learn something new every day. <laughs> yes. Anyways, this was, you know sparrow learning which is probably something relatively basic but it's also like what else have i thought was a lie is this actually fruit is this actually vegetable i don't know <laughs> but yeah i kind of love that a scientist will have a different definition than a chef it's like that iconic scene in stardew valley where um the scientist's wife asks him to bring some fruit home and he brings her tomatoes and he has this whole argument where he's like, oh, it is a, it is a fruit. You asked for a fruit, so I brought you a tomato. And she gets angry. And I'm like, Demetrius, <laughs> you're wrong. If your wife asks you to bring home fruit, you're not bringing home a tomato. But, you know, <laughs> I just don't like him as a character in the thing. So that might be my personal <laughs> bias. <laughs> okay, so the couple held off eating the aubergine until they were so desperate that they had nothing else, and the wife began peeling the fruit. As she chopped, she heard a low moan and a cry from within. Perplexed, she carefully cut open the fruit and jumped back in bewilderment when a tiny maiden stepped out. She was the most beautiful creature they had ever seen, and they adopted her at once. The poor couple had long wished for children of their own and had never had one, so this was an answer to their prayers. They named her Princess Aubergine because even if she had not been born with the title, she was so charming and beautiful that she earned the title in their eyes. This is giving me Princess Kaguya vibes, and it reminds <laughs> me of when the old bamboo cutter found her in that bamboo stalk. 
there are just so many maidens that are like these tiny people and tiny fairies, I guess, that come out of fruit and vegetables and trees that it's kind of giving me, um, you know, like the whole fairy changeling, changeling vibes where they replace a real baby with a fairy baby. Oh, yeah. It kind of gives me that kind of in, like image of replacing so a, a, a couple usually childless because this is also in the the peach boy story where they are begging for a child they really want a child so they get this child in a strange fruit and usually the child is tiny which you know logistically you don't really know how that's going to work but they george shrinks their way through life and it usually ends up fine but at the same time i also get why all of them are tiny because it's like if you're already trying to tell a story that it came out of a fruit or a vegetable or something, those don't get that big. Mm-hmm. Of course, the child's going to come out small. I'm just kind of surprised that no one decided to immediately just make them grow big right out the gate. They always start small and then stay small for a time. Makes sense for fairy tales, I suppose. <laughs> so over time, the maiden did grow and she grew more and more beautiful. And it wasn't long until she came to the attention of the queen. One of the queen's handmaidens had gone to the poor man's hut next door from the palace to get some light when she witnessed the marvelous girl. She went back to the jealous queen at once and told her of the beautiful princess Aubergine. The queen, despite having seven sons and a loving husband, was always fearful of losing her position. She was also a great sorceress and had always been the most beautiful in all the lands. But she feared that if the king saw Princess Aubergine, then he would forget her and every other woman in the world. So she plotted. All she needed was a way to get Princess Aubergine to the palace, and then she would be able to dispose of her. She sent a letter to the Brahmin's hut, declaring that the royal family had heard of their daughter's great beauty, and the queen wanted to see it for herself, to check if it was true. Now, for all her charm and beauty, the princess was just as vain as the queen, and was outraged, so she went at once to prove herself. Usually our princess protagonists are beautiful and also critically virtuous. So it's strange to hear the text explicitly state that she is also vain and wanted to show off. It gives her a different feel from a lot of other standard princesses that we're used to hearing about. A lot of princesses in these stories tend to be kind of passive or they wait to be rescued or their biggest trait is that they are kind to a fault they forgive. But when we go back to the origins of some of the stories like Snow White or Sleeping Beauty, a lot of the time the princesses do have some moments where they do cause pain to others or they do say something or they do show some kind of negative trait like vanity or self-possession or jealousy. So in this case, I think... Her acting this way is quite natural because she is the most beautiful girl. Uh, She's probably some kind of fairy and fairies are typically quite jealous, vain creatures in a lot of Indian and Persian folklore. Uh, So to me, it's not really that surprising because I'm just thinking it's the most realistic aspect here that the princess who's beautiful and charming and probably some kind of magical creature is upset that someone's questioning how beautiful she is. And then you'll see later on, she does do some things that's quite questionable and hurts innocent people, but she does it regardless. When I first read the story, that was absolutely thought went through my mind. It was like, oh, if she is vain about this, what is she going to do next? Normally, like you said, princesses are passive mm-hmm. um, for the most part, so I don't really expect them to 
do much. Like in some cases, it gets established early on. They're actually going to do stuff. They're actually going to be active in their story. But up to this point, she'd been so passive. I'm like, yeah, she's going to be, you know, stock princess number three. And then to see her say the statement, I was like, ooh, ooh, red flag. What's happening next? <laughs> I think it's a good match for the queen. I think when you have an evil character that's as evil as the queen is going to be and as wicked, you mm-hmm. kind of need someone that's going to temper her out. Otherwise, the story is going to be quite unsatisfying. I feel like a lot of stories end up being unsatisfying because the wicked person will go to such great lengths to get what they want and the heroes don't ever match it. They do the right thing, air quotes. And sometimes we just want to see a satisfying comeuppance story. Oh, absolutely. And when I say red flag, I meant red flag for the queen. Like, this is not going to end well, like, very specifically because of the princess, not because of things that will happen around her. But, like, she's got her own forces of nature within her. And it's going to be interesting to see. Well, it'll be interesting to talk through what happens next. So what does happen next is that as soon as she arrived, the queen declared that they must be sisters. And she dearly wished that Princess Aubergine would reside with her. Keep your enemies close and all that jazz. The two women shared their veils and drank milk from the same cup, as was the custom when people declared themselves to be sisters not related by blood. That night, the queen went to the sleeping princess and worked her spell carefully because she had found out almost at once upon seeing the girl that she was a fairy. She quietly asked the sleeping girl what the secret to her life was. And Princess Aubergine murmured quietly that her life rested with the life of the eldest prince. Once he was killed, then she would die at once. Almost without thought, the queen hurried to her son's room and killed him with her own hands. The next day, she screamed in rage and grief when she saw that the princess was awake and alive. Well, that escalated (laughs) quickly. Yeah, so I mean, it's obviously a choice that Princess Aubergine's making to lie about this because she's fighting off the magic. So, not sure how I feel about that, because the eldest prince is obviously not someone who's involved in this at all, who's not part of any of this. So, it's an innocent bystander who's being, who literally just got killed by his own mom. For those at home, you can go ahead and mark off royalty kills uh, someone way too quickly as part of their fairy tale bingo (laughs) sheet. Well, for the next six nights, the queen continued her wicked project. She used curse after curse to find the princess's life source, and every night, the princess told her that her life rested with another one of the queen's sons. So, she killed each and every one of her sons. She wept in rage at killing her sons for naught, and easily lied to her husband that her sons passed of an infectious disease, and still Princess Aubergine lived. Okay, at what point do you decide that maybe, just maybe, you can't trust the princess and just stop killing your sons. Like, I guess it's after you kill them all, but <laughs> wouldn't you think at least after the third one, you might start going, okay, I think I might be tricked. Maybe I should try a different tactic. I feel like it's just that she's so wrapped up in winning this contest. She's so wrapped up in being right. Maybe she thinks that because the princess is a fairy that she keeps transferring her soul to the next son, to the next son, to the next son. So maybe at the end of it, she'll win. But even if she wins, I feel like the cost of the princess versus your seven sons just isn't a fair trade-off. But, I mean, she's supposed to be an evil sorceress who is fully committed to the dark arts and she's completely lost herself and her grief and her anger and her resentment. So it might be one of those things that once you've killed one, you might as well kill the rest, even though, you know, 
they're your kids and they came from you. What I thought was going to happen next was that it was going to come down to the like the youngest son, and then the youngest son was going to be our protagonist, catching on like, hmm, my brothers are dying rather quickly. Maybe I should get out of here. And then, you know, doing the rest of the story. But nah, he just died <laughs> real quick. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, the husband does get a light pass here because I feel like once the first or second or third son dies maybe start calling doctors or having guards around the house or the palace. I just feel like having all seven of your sons die in a row, it's a shock. So obviously you're, you're grieving the first son by the time the second son dies and then the second son. So, but you would start to be a little bit more proactive and think about the remaining kids. Yeah. I, I mean, I would go full paranoia being like, okay, this is not going to slide. I'm not going to lose another... Let's do some other stupid stuff that's not just letting them die this easily. Yeah, like I would, you know, maybe take them to a temple or have someone come take care of them or watch them or pray over them. Just something so that they're on watch and they're on guard. Or send them away. Yeah, or send them away. Send them somewhere to be rejuvenated or healthy. I mean, it's really hard to say because we don't know if the queen had a spell on the king or if she had some kind of hold on him. This is true. Because it does seem like he's a kind, like he just seems like a, a general king love slash love interest character uh, mm-hmm. who doesn't really have much agency. So that might be because he's either under a spell or he's just not that involved because child rearing is usually the woman's job. So He's the true princess in the story. He's passive <laughs> and kind. He's the passive and kind princess, and Princess Aubergine is the aggressive one. Also, wow, like, you're trying to trick the queen, but then you're just tricking her to killing her own lineage. Like, there's so many other fun things you could do, I think, that could, like, send her on wild goose chases for things. But no, she's like, how about you just keep killing your children? Yeah, it's just a way to, I guess, to punish her, but it does seem like it hurts too many bystanders such innocence. And also... The king and queen aren't old, so it's young sons as well. And I feel like that's a bit much to kill children. Yeah. Yeah. Can, can we have more fun trickery instead of this really <laughs> sad trickery, please? Well, finally, speaking of wild goose chases, on the eighth night, Princess Aubergine could not fight the magic anymore and had to answer truthfully. She told the queen that in a river far away, there was a red and green fish. Inside the fish, there was a bumblebee. Inside that was a locked box. Her soul was locked away in that box in a nine-lock necklace. So the necklace seems important, but as Temple in his rewriting of the story remarks, that the item is seen as a general magic item throughout many folklores, uh, tales from the Punjab and from northern India. And it's usually where a soul is hidden or where a dead body spirit is hidden. Um, So it seems to be more of just like, a story that evolved over time so there's lots of stories that have this necklace in it once she found out about the necklace the queen acted almost immediately and went to wake up her husband in tears he was very sympathetic and kind and she begged him to find her the magic necklace it was the only thing that would help her in her grief over losing all of her sons and otherwise she would die the king was a kind man and would do anything to help his wife So he ordered every fisherman in the city to fish day and night until they found this specific red and green fish. When she woke up, Princess Aubergine knew that her days were numbered, so she went back home and begged her parents to not burn or bury her when she dies. 
Instead, they need to lay her to rest on her bed and take her out to the wilderness. They should build a high wall surrounding her and scatter flowers over her. They agreed and waited helplessly for her to die. It didn't take long. As soon as the sorceress had her greedy hands on the necklace, she put it on and as she did, the princess collapsed onto the floor. Her parents cried bitterly but could not do anything else, so they took her to the northern forest and lay her to rest in her finest dress. When the queen found out that the princess was neither burnt nor buried, she was unsatisfied but could do nothing else. All she could do was warn her husband against hunting in the north. Back to our semi-protagonist, the king, or our side character, the king, the love interest. He had noticed a sudden change in his wife, and it was hard to say if he was under a spell or not. But combined with the death of their seven sons, he was deep in his grief. He spent all of his time hunting and eventually had been to every inch of their forest, except the northern ones. One day while hunting, he accidentally wandered over, and he stumbled across a high wall in the middle of the forest. He climbed over it curiously, and when he did, he was frozen in shock. Below, he saw a beautiful maiden lying on a bed. She looked as if she was sleeping and not dead. And so day after day, he returned to her and kept watch in the hopes that she would wake up. Her body never decomposed, and she always looked radiant and beautiful. He wondered if she was a fairy or under a spell, and so he stayed there and he prayed. So, let me get this straight. The, the king, our princess king, like, was very grief-stricken, understandable, but then he spent, like, every day hunting for, like, a year, and then found her and was, like, so starstruck. He was like, I'm just going to go see her all the time and see this radiant, beautiful person. Um, when is he actually, like, ruling a kingdom? It kind of sounds like he's kind of slacking on his main job as king. <laughs> Do you, do you think he's just popping back every once in a while and be like, I decree this. Okay, now, see ya. I've got very important hunting to do. Bye. Or is he just fully giving up and just giving delegating it to his advisors? Well, I mean, a lot of kings, and I don't know too much about Punjabi kings, but I know a lot of shahs had viziers and sultans had viziers and a lot of kings had advisors um, that would kind of help rule in their stead or help rule with them. Or basically just give them a list of things that are happening and actions they need to take. But according to the story itself, he only ever really goes home at night. So I, maybe he does all his work at night. Maybe he takes work with him. Like he works from home, so he works remotely from besides <laughs> the princess. Works remotely on a Zoom call. <laughs> well, it's quite hard to say. I mean, I guess a lot of people would understand his grief. A lot of people would understand the loss of not just one prince, but all seven of them is a big toll to take and so they might be giving him kind of some time to just grieve and be on his own and running the kingdom in his stead uh it could also be that the queen has something to do with it maybe she's taking over running the place because she seems the type so we don't know that's true too anyways just a thought i had i'm like hmm, you don't seem to be doing your job (laughs) okay (laughs) well he's the king he can just take time off whenever he wants fair enough he kept this up for over a year One day, when he came for his daily visit, he saw that a baby was lying next to the princess. The baby was as beautiful as his mother, and the king tenderly took care of him during the day. When the child could talk, the king asked him who he was and if his mother was truly dead. The little boy responded that his mother was alive and well. She would wake up at night and take care of him. Astonished, the king asked how this could be. 
The little boy responded that his mother's soul lay in a necklace that the queen wore around her neck. Every night when she took it off, Princess Aubergine would wake up. The king was puzzled to hear that his wife was involved somehow, and begged the boy to ask his mother more questions. The next day, he eagerly returned to little boy and heard the tale of how his queen had cursed Princess Aubergine. The little boy was a gift to the king to help him grieve his seven sons. And this is the narrative I'm going to stick with as well, because the alternative is a bit too much like what happened to Sleeping Beauty and her son, uh, for my liking. Yeah, I was getting those vibes as well. Well, I like this explanation of, oh, I just miraculously made this baby as a gift to you. Another wonder child. Haha. <laughs> yeah, like, you know what? If she was a wonder child and she's a fairy and her soul is inside of a fish, inside of a bumblebee, inside of a box, what's to say that this child also isn't similar? So I'm going to accept this answer at face value. Fair. I get that. Uh, anyway, so the king wanted to know how he could help. And the little boy replied that he was the only one that could take the necklace back. So the king took the little boy with him. And when he arrived at the palace, he declared that this was going to be his newest heir. The queen grew wild with rage at the thought of her husband cheating, but also at the thought of her own sons. So she decided to poison the boy. She tried tempting him with sweets and pastries that were obviously poisoned. But the little boy refused to eat anything until he could play with the glittering necklace. The queen was driven by her greed, so she handed over the necklace, but as soon as she did, the little boy ran as quickly as the wind back to his mother, Princess Aubergine. The king followed, and as he arrived, he saw the princess waking up. He begged her to come with him to the palace and be his wife, but she refused. She told the king about his wife's cruelty and how she had murdered her seven sons and cursed the princess. She would only come back to the palace if she could walk over the queen's grave on her way in. She directed the king to dig a hole and fill it with scorpions and snakes before tossing the wicked queen inside. As soon as he returned home, the king tried to get the queen to follow him down to the grounds, but she refused, and so he had the guards grab her and throw her into the trench before burying her alive. As for Princess Aubergine and her son, they walked over the grave and lived happily in the palace ever after. The end. Yes, I mean, again, we see that little bit of cruelty, um, very similar yeah. to the Cinderella stories where she has her stepsisters and her mother put into a barrel and rolled down. Um, obviously, the barrel is covered in nails. Other ones where they have to put on, you know, the dancing red shoes and they dance till they die. Lots of comeuppance. And I feel like this is one of those classic tales where the queen gets what she deserves in the end. Yeah. I also like the loophole that like that she actually came alive at night because the queen would take off the necklace, which kind of makes sense uh, in that weird roundabout way. But it's also funny to think that the, the queen, who's like so terrified and obsessed with all this, that she would even think of taking off the necklace in the first place. So I don't know. It's a fun loophole, but it's also like I think this queen is paranoid enough where she would have done that. Or I'm actually surprised she didn't try and destroy it. Yeah, I'm just like, what was it all for? What was it all for? Uh, a couple extra years to rule the kingdom, apparently, I guess. But yes, otherwise, I think it was quite a fun, interesting story. And I've never really heard a story that had this kind of character and this kind of plotline where the princess, that's the cursed one, ends up being quite cruel as well in her own way. Mm -hmm. It doesn't feel really much of a love story. Uh, because it just feels like 
these two women are using this man to kind of play against each other. And he's kind of just kind of going back and forth, not really sure what's going on until the end. And he's not loyal. Like, he has a whole life. And I know in a lot of stories and a lot of specifically, you know, Persian, Mughal Empire, Ottomans, Indian empires, all of that, we do have to always keep in mind that the standards of having one wife, two wives, three wives, completely different from our modern day take on it. But, you know, he's, he's gone every day for almost nine months to a year. Um, and his wife doesn't really seem to care. So it's more like he's a status symbol for her that she gets to be the queen and she has the king and she doesn't really care all that much about him. It's just that she's worried about losing her position and losing her power. Yeah. Um, but joke's on her because she would have always been the first wife with the seven sons. But she killed her sons. <laughs> <laughs> but she killed them, yeah. So it's just her own vanity and then the princess, Aubergine, it's her kind of dishing out karma in a way it's also a cute beat that when she knows she's about to die princess aubergine goes back to her original family like her found family the poor family she's like i just want to live with you guys until you know she passes away essentially Mm -hmm. Um, and that was like that's a sweet moment being close to the ones you loved and it's like she might have been a fairy and she might have been really powerful but she seemed to uh like she still picked being with this like poor family and wanted to spend time with them like and that i think that's just really sweet well travelers you don't have to walk over an old queen's grave or any grave for that matter to reach our five fantastic finds to end our episode number one the queen in today's tale invited the princess to live with her as her sister even though it seems strange that she would want to be around someone she hated This was a tactical decision to keep a close eye on her and find her weakness. As Fox said, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. This got me thinking of that classic phrase and where it comes from. It turns out that this phrase is accredited to Sunzi, a Chinese military strategist from the 6th century BC, though it's hard to say if he said this word for word. But he is one of the earliest written sources of this idea. Similarly, the concept and phrase are attributed to Machiavelli, who very much explored this idea when writing The Prince. But neither of these historical figures clearly stated this phrase verbatim. That credit goes to the 1974 film called The Godfather Part Two. Sometimes going down a rabbit hole gives me unexpected answers from history. And sometimes it just gives me a movie quote. Number two. When you think of fairy tales, you probably aren't thinking about science fiction, and yet there is some intersection between the two. One of the earliest examples of science fiction is the tale of Princess Kaguya, which we covered during our first year of the podcast. Now, if you haven't heard that story before, then don't worry, you can check it out. But to cut to the chase, the main reason why people call it science fiction is the fact that Kaguya is a princess from the moon and was sent to Earth as some kind of punishment. The moon people send her down and she is born, so to say, inside a bamboo stalk, where an old bamboo cutter finds her and she becomes his daughter. This leads us to the born from plants trope. These protagonists are often tiny and born from plants. Now, not to be confused with plant people who are plants or are plant people hybrids, these characters are often found in some kind of fruit or vegetable. For example, we have Momotaro, the peach boy from Japanese tales, 
Timun Mas, a girl born from a golden cucumber, the pomegranate princess, who is a princess born instead of pomegranate, and so many more. There are also many stories of humans being sculpted or created from plants. For example, according to Norse mythology, Philly V and Odin created the first humans, Ask and Embla, from trees, which is similar to Filipino beliefs that the race of man came from bamboo stalks. The Filipino creation story is wild in itself, so that is definitely on our list of stories to recount in the future. Number three. In stories, death is often not as permanent as it is in real life. Sometimes characters can extend their life through magic or come back from the beyond through supernatural means. In rare cases, characters, usually villains, may go to extremes to ensure that they continue existing by tying their souls to an object. These objects are known as soul jars. For characters with soul jars to die, usually one must destroy both the physical body and the soul jar itself. But sometimes, simply eliminating the soul jar is enough to get the job done. If one kills the physical body, but the soul jar is left alone, either the body will regenerate or the soul will return to the soul jar and find another way to regain a body. As a result, characters with soul jars go to great lengths to ensure that their soul jar is either well protected or straight up unbreakable. Since they are hard to get to and destroy, this can lead to more unique challenges for our heroes as they rely more on their smarts than trying to outmuscle the villain. One example for modern media is the Horcruxes from the Harry Potter franchise. Voldemort splits his soul into eight pieces and places each into items of significance to him. Similarly, beings called liches from the tabletop role-playing game Dungeons & Dragons are evil undead spellcasters that have gone to great lengths to create soul jars known as a phylactery. While Voldemort only has to kill a single soul for each horcrux he makes, liches kill to create the phylactery, but then they require many more souls to feed to their phylactery in order to sustain them. After thinking of these two examples, it makes me wonder what our princess went through to make that necklace to be her soul jar. While it is unlikely, it is possible that the soul jar is something that just sort of happened to her. But most examples would indicate that there was some sort of sacrifice involved to gaining one. Number four. Evil stepmothers often have no qualms about killing their stepchildren or shape-shifting them, mutilating them, abandoning them, abusing them. The list truly does go on. However, it is rare to see a biological mother commit these same crimes against her own children. I mean, that is, when the mother is allowed to live past the first few lines of the story. Evil mothers are often bowdlerized to make the work more moral for children. If you're unfamiliar with this term, it basically means we take the stories from the origins, which are often kind of cruel, and we adapt them to make it so that children won't be scared listening to them or reading them. For example, in the early version of Snow White, her own mother tries to have her killed instead of her stepmother. One place to go if you want to look for lots of people trying to kill their own kids is in the Greek myths. For example, Queen Procne kills her own son and feeds it to her husband as revenge for him raping and mutilating her sister. Medea kills her children by Jason before fleeing after learning that he is planning on leaving her. Clytemnestra has Electra locked away in a cave to starve, and there are so many more examples. In modern stories, we still see more fathers going after their offspring than mothers, like Firelord Ozai to Zuko, Hiroshi Sato to Asami, but we still have our fair share of evil mothers. 
In Moana, Maui's mother threw him into the ocean. Then we have books like Stephen King's Carrie and Agatha Christie's The Chocolate Box. And don't even get me started on Mystique and how she tries to kill both of her sons and only really succeeds with one. In fact, the MCU and the DCU have many, 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 many instances of offing the offspring. And number five. Princess Aubergine is named after the plant that she came out of. And after my revelation that eggplants were both a fruit and a vegetable, I started wondering what other secrets this mysterious purple plant was hiding. As it turns out, eggplants originate from India and have been cultivated there for over 1,500 years. But it has deep roots in China as well. The plant was used as a dye for fashion and to stain ladies' teeth. This was so that when their teeth were polished, they would gleam like metal. And in Italy, the word for eggplant is melanzane, which means mad apple. This was because there was a belief that eating them would make people angry. While this obviously isn't accurate, they are actually a part of the nightshade family, like potatoes and tomatoes. While they all contain lots of good nutrients and taste great in ratatouille, they also contain alkaloid solanine, which can be highly toxic when concentrated. As always, if you want to see the show summary, then subscribe for updates on our website at talesfromenchantforest.com. And if you want to hear more from us, join us on Twitter at From Enchanted or on Instagram, Mastodon, or TikTok by our podcast name. For questions, comments, and guest requests, please send us an email to talesfromenchantforest at gmail.com. And if you have anything to share, then please don't hesitate. Remember, travelers, if you enjoyed what you heard today and what we do here, then please give us a review on whatever platform you use to listen to this podcast. It helps the podcast grow and reach new travelers to join us on these adventures. And remember, there's always a place for you in the Enchanted Forest.